Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We're back again. It's episode 10, Dave Brooks. Amazing. We've made it 10 episodes with this podcast and we are still going strong. We haven't been removed, not by the powers that be, and still not by Rick and Nick. Their dragon boat went down this past weekend, Did it. and they've swam ashore somewhere. They sent in postcards with them in tropical ladies on a beach setting, which it is still Lake Bemidji, I believe, but who knows? They they went ashore. So you're saying they went ashore somewhere on Lake Bemidji, and they've sent us postcards saying we're not coming back because we found tropical island people? Well, kind of like JFK when his 109 PT went down, and they had to live for a while on a deserted island with people and... I guess that wouldn't be a deserted island, but uh, you get the idea. They're coconut drinks. There's rum in those drinks. I think they just found a party. Okay. <laughs> Typical movie people. Rick and Nick not even going to show up now as a result, even though they might, in theory, just be a couple miles down the road. But anyway, we digress. It's Joel Hoover and Dave Brooks back with you once again for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, our 10th episode. And we are sponsored, very proud to be sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters here in town. They've got the placards right there. Did you see the placards? I did not see the placards. I was not that I was scouring the lobby looking for. I'm not staying here if I can't find the placard, but I didn't see it. Okay, you were so. you were busy getting ready for the movie itself, which uh, we'll we'll discuss here in a moment. What you saw, um, we've talked about this movie before previously, but uh, we're very proud to be sponsored by uh, Bemidji Theaters and pleased that we can team up with them. Um, they they've. Been They're not promoting us staff, the, yeah. Yeah, they've been promoting us in there, and it's it's been great, the, the relationship that we've been able to build with them. We're very happy that they are supporters of the podcast, and we love to support them because Dave and I love to go see movies at Bemidji Theater. Yeah, you and I, we're big movie files. You know, I, I, I tell you, before I was married, and even now, uh, I have no problems with going to see a movie alone. It's like eating alone at a restaurant. Some people have a stigma to it. Not me, boy, and I don't think you either. No, We will go not. to a movie completely alone, completely happy. I've done that many times here over the past couple of years. Yeah, it's it's enjoyable to go because then you can kind of take in the experience for yourself, and it's it's neat to do it that way. You're not answering questions. Why is this guy with the thing and the guy? Oh, just please just watch the movie. I don't understand why this guy. Oh, you don't get that. You could just sit there and watch the movie. That's right. Today we're going to discuss uh, film canon, which is, uh, in some ways, you can tie into film franchise a little bit. But film canon, much like literature canon, is kind of its own separate category in some respects and has a lot of different... Uh, different nuances that come with it. So we're going to talk film canon today and dive a little bit into that. But first, Dave, you went to the movies this past weekend, first time you've gotten to go here in a little bit, and you got a chance to see Dunkirk now. Saw Dunkirk. Good movie, very good movie. Uh, We won't talk spoilers for Dunkirk because it's only been out for two weeks. Uh, A lot of people... I think it's up to around three now, isn't it? Eh, Two or three. It's been about there. So we'll we'll give people an opportunity to go see it without spoiling it. We'll give you a, a little moratorium. Uh, but what I can say is I shared a lot of your opinions. It was very, very good. 
Um, it was uh, the the separate timelines without getting too specific. Tying together at the end was, oh, okay, I get it now. That was pretty cool. And kind of like watching another of his movies, Memento. Now that you get it, you want to see it again, knowing going in now what you know coming out. It felt like that was the most necessary way to be able to give each respective storyline enough yeah. time within the movie to be able to, to do the work. Even though they were happening on very different lapses of time, you needed to be able to see each one at a somewhat equal length. It's kind of like knowing the backstory when it finally comes around, it's like the punchline to the joke. You don't just get the punchline. You need to know the setup. And so when you have them all punchlined together, it works better. And so you're tied in now to three different storylines that you're invested in emotionally. And now you know how you got there. Now you're watching them pay off. Right. And you have the luxury of watching it from a third person's perspective rather than in the cockpit or whatever the case. It was really well done, really put together. Um yeah, I can see why they're talking Oscar buzz. It's it hits you emotionally too. It it really does. The music I thought was was tremendous too. Not only the the tenseness of the music and the way that that uh the the ticking clock was used so well yeah. too within within the the music and the soundtrack. But then those those emotional moments where the music was used and tied in really well too. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what this movie can do as far as the Oscars are concerned. We're gonna at some point we will do a podcast all about film scores, uh, but uh, Zimmer Hans Zimmer who did uh, does a lot of movies with Christopher Nolan had done this one. I thought it was good, but I wasn't completely floored by it. Uh, I think it works more effectively in some ways than others, and I understand the sting with the stopwatch, and I liked where that went. Yeah, but it's so minimalistic, and maybe that works. Um, that was kind of the movie in general, though. Yeah, which makes it so unique. Then again, I've only saw it Saturday night and it's Monday morning, so maybe I need a little more time to marinate on it. But it was like um, uh, Interstellar he had also done. That was one that, it was like church music. It was organ music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't grab me for some reason. But while he does things with the Dark Knight trilogy, for another example, that did grab me. That was fantastic. So yeah. it's it's a taste. I like John Williams too, but one movie versus another movie, I like a score better in one than others. So it's, it's I think it just goes down the lines of that, but an insanely talented guy. A great movie, great cast. Great duo when you put those two together. Yeah. I mean, all of them together, between Tom Hardy in there and Christopher Nolan directing and Hans Zimmer. I mean, you can go back to Inception. You can go back to The Dark Knight Rises. You've got a team that's coming together. Um, and I like seeing that in Hollywood movies. Yeah, Nolan certainly has his own repertory in in some ways of people who keep coming back and even some new faces too. I thought Mark Rylance was fantastic yeah. as the uh, as the the little boat captain um, and and what he did was terrific there. Killian Murphy, Killian Murphy, Cillian Murphy, whichever one is. If it's I've only seen soft. it red, yeah, yeah. It's um, he. I mean his his performance I thought was was pretty heart wrenching too. As um, that that sailor who's pulled in. Um, but but even the young actors too. I mean, Harry Styles did do a terrific job. I, I thought he was good. Fionn Whitehead was was great as well. Um, some some young guys giving a chance to these young guys to the, these unknowns to sort of make a name for themselves. Pretty awesome. And one of those minor conspiracies that you and I were talking about just before we started was the fact that why is Harry Styles? If you don't know, uh, Harry Styles was one of the guys in the band One Direction. Now he's got a solo career, very talented musician. Why is he getting a part in this movie? Well, you can compare that to something else that Nolan had said in a previous movie with Inception when he gave David Bowie a role. And he did a fantastic job in the role. It was actually The Prestige. What did I say? 
Inception. It's, uh, you're right, Prestige. I'm sorry, I said it backwards. Uh, and you're right. Uh, that was you did a fantastic job. Bowie was a pretty good actor, not only pretty good musician. And Harry Styles, not going to say he's the next David Bowie by any stretch. No, but it was in the same limelight. He's a very good musician and did a very good job as an actor. That's right. You're going to go see The Dark Tower, Dave? No. <laughs> Reviews have not been good no. at all. It topped the box office this past weekend. It edged out Dunkirk, which was the first repeat winner at the box office its first two weekends for a couple of weeks, actually. It had been since uh, a movie repeated at the top of the box office. But The Dark Tower was tops for this weekend has not done well at all as far as the reviews are concerned. In fact, it has been horrible in well, the reviews. And that's the, it gives you the point about a reference as to what I got into a talk with somebody this weekend. What makes a good movie? What is a good movie? Well, it's getting great you know, response at the box office. Yeah, but the reviews are horrible. If you go and see a movie and only then find out it's a bad movie, doesn't mean that just because Transformers Revenge of the Fallen was top ten of the year it came out that it was a good movie because it wasn't a good movie. Right. Sometimes you know in advance going in that it's not a good movie. Shawshank, nobody saw it in the theaters. It's a fantastic movie. It bombed at the box office, but yep. it's a fantastic movie. It's funny because it got its second wind later on once yeah. it was out of theaters. That was the the weird the weird part about it. It's helped by the, TV, I think. Yeah, too. oh, big Turner in a big way. Yeah. But I think the issue with the Dark Tower, from what I'm understanding, is they really didn't take much from the book. And uh, it, the book is extru- the series actually is not one book. It's a bunch of books. They're so layered. It's like trying to put the Lord of the Rings in a single two-hour movie. You just can't do it. And this wasn't even two hours. No. It was 95 minutes or something. They took a, they barely glazed over it and put it together. And it just, eh. It needs to be, this is the kind of thing that make it a miniseries. Like Stephen King's It. Before the one that's about to come out, I mean the one from the early 90s was a miniseries. Yeah. That was fantastic. Got great response, and there's some good buzz about the version that's coming out now. But since this is just one movie versus a miniseries, I'll bet you that the response for the TV series might be better because it's going to be richer. Right. You get more of that nuance and that depth to it, and which is a good tie-in to where we're going with today's podcast episode because we're talking about canon and canon in the movies. Now, we should define what canon is yes, first. Film canon, by the way, there's... If you look it up and even Google it, Film Canon has a couple of different definitions tied into it. One being um, movies within a particular genre that are considered the best by those who are critically evaluating them. So that's that's one interpretation of Film Canon. We're looking at Canon more along the lines of the way that you would look at Canon with literature, and that being those that are official. Canon and official, I think, are very synonymous with each other. Better yet to describe it is is, uh, established history. So if you're talking about a TV show. Very good. That was a very cultured answer. There you go. If in episode (laughs) one they're saying that, you know, this guy was born in Nebraska, and then later in episode 10 the very same guy, well, when you were born in Massachusetts, wait wait, wait, wait a minute. You said before that this guy. So the, the longer something goes on, the more rich the tapestries that are woven, the easier it is to trip over yourself when you say something that contradicts something you'd said earlier. Right. Doesn't work in court. And a lot of people that really take these shows seriously, it really bugs them too when things don't line up. That's another that's a very good definition of canon. Basically, if you look at it that way, it's it is the con- the continuity of everything, how consistent is it and is it is it of an official capacity as well? I, uh, uh, the official stamp is really important too because 
as we'll see here as we discuss canon a little bit, you got to have that stamp that comes with it as well yeah. of this this is official or it is not. So two things we're going to say real quick before we dive into it. First of all, there will be spoilers forthcoming. Plenty. Plenty yeah. of spoilers. So if you've got stuff coming up that you don't want to know about, be aware. You are probably going to hear twist endings and uh, how the movies are different from the books and that kind of thing. So be aware. There will be spoilers ahead at your own risk. As far as canon goes, I think what uh, Hoove and I are talking about would be to easily break this down are three different categories of canon. When it works, when it doesn't work, and how can you get around it? Uh, kind of what we've decided we're going to break it down to. Yeah, because canon is pretty flexible in the movies. You can do a lot of different things with it within a film context, and we'll we'll explain why here in a moment. So what do you think works as far as canon in movies, Dave? What examples have you seen that you've said... This works for making canon happen, and this was pretty consistent. I think when I think it really comes down to caring. If you're going to do if chapter if you're doing chapter seven, it doesn't work necessarily with a sequel as much. But um, if you're going to go from chapter seven to chapter six to chapter eight, is there a lineage between them that kind of carries over? Is there attention to detail when you're doing the next one that pays attention to what had happened the one before? When you take uh, when you take a point like that, and this is the way it is, well, why does it have to be this way? Because it was before. This is how it has to be. You know, um, you have to follow that example. So when that happens, and I'm using a very broad stroke here, but when attention is paid to what has come before, that's a fantastic thing. Sometimes you come up with a great idea for a story, and you're determined to do that story, even though parts of that story fly in the face of things that have come before then you have to either adjust your story or you have to come up with a really cool way to explain why things don't match up in this case. Mm -hmm. When you do that, then canon works. And there's great more specific examples to that, but that's a great way to make canon work. One that has come up at least in recent years, and it's it's one that I think it involves all elements of all, th of all three things that we discussed in some ways. It, in some ways, it is very good. In other ways, it's not so good because it can be easy to confuse the continuity and the, the timeliness of everything. But it also is an example of how film can change canon or, or canon can be oh, yeah. adapted by film. And the example that I'm thinking of is the X-Men movies. Because when you look at it, if you break it all down and break down the way that the, that the timeline of the movies works... It actually does work yeah. when you look at it. It actually does work. On the surface, and this is what I'm saying about how there are some elements of this kind of doesn't work because if you look at it on the surface, you go, well, this is too confusing. How in the world did they reboot this? But but think about it. You have X-Men, X-Men 2, X-Men 3 that, that come out. You even factor in the, the Wolverine movies. Um, so they, they, they go on their own plane of time. One, and, two, and three, four, five, so to speak. Basically. So they're, they're going chronologically in order like that obviously ended on a pretty bad note with x-men 3 with x3 the last stand didn't go very well with with the way that that one wrapped up but then you've got those wolverine movies that come along and then comes the idea of well let's do kind of a, a soft reboot and go back to the 1960s with x-men first class and we'll start anew with these guys and girls when they were young and first getting the X school up and running, and uh, by the way, love that movie. First class is is fantastic. One movie. of it's like 
it, for me personally, it's a sleeper movie that is like it's in my favorites, and it's one of those ones that I love digging it out time and time again because it's like, oh, this is just such a clever movie. Um, but then came and, Day- you think, and you think it's a reboot, You're like, well, they're going to start again from right. the beginning. Not really. But then comes Days of Future Past, which is this this crazy time past jumping. and present coming together and it, it's so cool seeing it on screen seeing patrick stewart and james mcavoy face to face with each other both as uh, professor x right from different parts of of time and then by the end of the movie time has been reset in a completely new way and in a different way and again this is getting into where it, it can get a little bit fuzzy when you get to the end of the movie and you're like oh wait what what exactly happened here but, but as they, far as the time? But then they've they've basically reset the clock a little bit, and now they can continue on the trajectory, 60s, 70s, and then they were in the 80s for X-Men Apocalypse. And they, they're doing they can, the new one right now. That's right. They can continue on that trajectory, and it's a new time frame. And yet it doesn't take away the original uh, value of the first couple of X-Men movies because they were still part of the greater scheme of of things. They were part of the greater story. I mean, you need those to get to where Wolverine and his story were at. So you you still need those parts of it. It's just now it's on a a completely new time frame, and you can still watch them all through, and and you'll be fine. The biggest question is how and what order do you stack them DVD-wise on your shelf if you're going to go chronologically? That is a good question. That's impossible to do. But, you know, and that is a great example of when canon goes right because they really paid attention to what happened. Oh, they may have recast a character or something that happens, but they were respectful. And a lot of times that'll happen when you have one group in charge of that. So uh, Lauren Schuler Donner has been overseeing a lot of that in a producer capacity. Um, so you have the same guard watching this from the start to so far. When it changes, that's when you can start running into things. Whether you, And uh, comic books are a great way to go. Um, sometimes, and here's a really where it gets, you want to talk about confusing canon and timelines. You can expand that from just X-Men to any comic book. Look at Batman, look at Superman, look at Spider-Man. You've got the source material in the comic books, okay? Then somewhere along the lines, they started doing TV shows, whether it was George Reeves in the 50s with Superman or Adam West, Batman in the 60s. And then they start making the leap to the big screen. Tim, we'll stick with Batman just to make it easy. Tim Burton in the late 80s and the early 90s. They did the four with Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer and George Clooney. They were all kind of the same. The only thing that really stuck together was Commissioner Gordon and Alfred. They were the only things that were consistent, but that was one group. Then you got Christopher Nolan doing Batman, and they reset completely. Then you've got TV shows and cartoons. You've got the expanded DC Universe. So what is the true canon of Batman? For example, we were talking about this who killed Bruce Wayne's parents? Really? I mean, if you read the comic books, it's this guy. If you see the movies, it's this guy. If you see the Christopher Nolan movies, it's another guy. In the cartoons, it wasn't. Who who really did it? It depends on what version of the canon you want to it's follow. It's all about interpretation. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and the canon works in such a way that they say the character of Harley Quinn, that character who's become a very popular character, was in last summer's Suicide Squad, Started in the comic book TV or the comic, uh, the animated series back in the '90s as a as a companion to the Joker became so popular that now she's almost been what's called retconned into the past. So she's woven into the canon so far back, even though chronologically she only shows up in the '90s. It gets confusing sometimes where the canon goes. So, but is that an example where canon works well? Kind of, but don't try to use logic 
when it comes to try to piece all this together. The challenge that comes with that then is it is up to the viewer to yeah. determine what their idea of canon is. And I think sometimes they they will then look at it as comparison between what were the better movies, I, I think is sometimes where that happens, especially when it comes to the comic book adaptations. We've got that going on right now. I mean, there's we've just recently had a new Spider-Man movie hit theaters. Now it becomes a comparison. Which Spider-Man movie set was the best one? Which Spider-Man as far as who played Spider-Man, was the best one. And you start to compare those. And then I think that starts to change people's idea of, this is what I view as canon. I think a lot of people who were so mesmerized by the way that the Dark Knight trilogy came together on screen are are very readily thinking Dark Knight trilogy when they think Batman in the movies. And then it's, okay, then then there comes the other ones. But I know others who, who love... The, the Tim Burton adaptation of Batman and the way that he went about it with with that and they love Jack Nicholson's Joker and, and the way that that was that that was presented and some of the nuance of that movie they didn't like some of the movies that followed some of the later ones yeah. certainly Batman and Robin comes yeah, to mind for that's sure. a big egg um, but but you th- but you think about it in terms of comparison is is what begins to happen then with multiple adaptations on screen even though the the there's not going to be the continuity, probably, you would think. And yet, then it becomes a, a comparison kind of thing. And whenever this most current Batman project comes on screen, then it might it's going to happen again. Yeah, but even to break it down even more so than that, you can compare Heath Ledger's Joker to Jack Nicholson's Joker. That is an interesting comparison, but I don't think you can lump that into the canon argument. The canon argument would be this. Use Spider-Man, for example. The Tobey Maguire movies... This, this the web shoot from a spot on his wrist. It's a biological yep. thing that he's shooting out as much as it would be spit or something. It's it's coming out of him. Then in other versions, it's some device that he's wearing on his wrist that's shooting out something that he made. That's what makes the webs. Yeah. So okay, so from one version, whether it's whether in a similar way with the Batman movies, look at the Batmobile. Oh, you yeah. know, with it's been but that's, a, but that's, a car, and then it becomes the tumbler that, sure. that you have that tank type thing. But I've had numerous cars in my life. So did Batman's old Batmobile broke down, and he had to get another one? Sure, it could make that argument. Could be. But if if you have Tobey Maguire with biological webs, and you have Andrew Garfield with mechanical webs, okay, so that's you reset it when you start the new thing. Okay, so it's that's consistent. But what if Tobey Maguire's for example, Spider-Man, the original that he did. It's biological. And then the sequel, all of a sudden, he doesn't have that anymore. Now it's shooting from a machine on his wrist. Well, then you've got a that's problem. That's a problem with continuity, and that's where canon comes. Well, wait a minute. In the last movie, it was coming out of these spots. No, no, no. Now it's all different. And in a way, it kind of didn't work out for him because he was so stressed out, but it worked for the plot. Right. It worked toward canon. So that's when they follow it, and it's very legitimate all the way through, and it's and the lineage is intact through at least the Tobey Maguire movies. Then you've got good canon. Whether it jumps the shark a little bit, or no, I shouldn't say that, jumps the rails a little bit, when you switch actors, you switch lineage. They almost, the Amazing Spider-Man was almost a kind of a redoing of Tobey Maguire's first Spider-Man with differences, but you're resetting everything. So the backstory is a little different. It's based on the same material, but it's not exactly the same thing. Well, yeah, the way that they treated Uncle Ben and his death yeah. certainly is one part of that. We'll take a quick time out here to remind you that Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters, and we're very happy to have them as our sponsor. Great place to go see a movie. 
We love going to see movies there, don't we, Dave? I love the Bemidji Theater. Great place to go catch a movie. Great people who do things there for uh, putting the movies on screen. It's the Bemidji Theater, and we're happy to have them as our sponsor. Dave, you had uh, a great example of a place where there was a a canon issue that, that existed. But then... With time and with opportunity, there was a change that was written in, and this is a crossover between television and movies and where this took place. But with time, this this canon issue was ironed out. And it also covers, at the same time, two parts of our discussion, when canon works and when canon does not work. So, like I said, where canon becomes the biggest issue, it's an advantage and it's a disadvantage, is the longer and deeper and richer the mythos goes. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find something as well-woven as Star Trek. So we're talking about the Klingons here. So in the original series back in the 60s, to be a Klingon basically meant you were going to have a goatee, dark facial hair, and like a dark facial makeup so you had olive skin. That's how the Klingons looked. This is the 60s. That's what they had the budget for. So then they do the movie in 1979. The Enterprise looks completely different, but they explained that. They said, well, we just redid everything, and it looks like a whole new ship, because it was. So now the Klingons look completely different. Now they got these little this skeletal, rigid structure on their head, and they don't look anything like a Klingon I saw on the show. Well, why do they look so different? They never said. Even in later episodes, they say, well, what would they do some time travel, and they'd have a Klingon with them going back to the 60s, why do they look so different? Well, we don't want to talk about it. You know, it's essentially what they said. They just didn't want to address and it. And therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. So, well, why exactly do they look different? Well, everyone knows really why they do, because they had a budget now. They had a makeup availability that they couldn't do. That's the real answer. But in the terms of the story, how does that change? Finally, near the run in the 2000s, they came up with a, they retconned something. And they came up with a biological warfare thing that was dropped on the Klingon Empire that made your ridges disappear for like a generation. So, you said it was it was Star Trek Enterprise. Star series. Trek Enterprise yeah, was the series. That was like, as far as chronology, Star Trek Enterprise would was come, before was, the original series. Was first, yeah. So that was the time to be able to do something like that. Yeah, but they did it at the end of the show. So at the beginning of Star Trek Enterprise, when it began... People are like, all right, well, then if they're going to have Klingons, they have to look like they did in the original series. But no, they look just like they did later in the movies with the ridges. Well, when, and this is partially why Enterprise was rejected by a lot of the hardcore fans, because they weren't following things like they should. It was later in the series run that they said, all right, we're going to handle this thing. And they came up with a biological warfare thing that made the ridges disappear that would eventually come back. Okay, that answers questions. And now you're leaning into a brand new online series that's about to launch this fall, Star Trek Discovery. It'll be on CBS All Access, and the Klingons are going to play a big part in it. Well, they've redesigned the look of the Klingons, and they're all bald, every one of them. There's rarely a bald Klingon, except in one of the movies. Well, why are they all bald? Well, they have already put out the word now as to how the Klingons work and how these ridges work. Now, Star Trek Discovery also takes place about 10 years before the original series. The theory that they've released to the fans is that because the Klingons are an apex predator, they have extra senses. And the ridges basically expands the surface area of their head, the tucks and the folds and that kind of thing. So the more surface area is exposed for these sensors, the better they can pick up their prey or however exactly it's going to work. Right. So that explains what the ridges are for in the first place. It's it's kind of interesting how they work that in. So if you're going to insert something in the past with that much mythos, you have to find a way to make it fit. Correct. 
And that's the beauty and the madness of canon in the movies and in television is that there is a degree of flexibility that you can have within reason. But if it's if it's something like Star Trek and another larger, broader topic, which we will get into a little bit later on, you can you need to make sure that you have your ducks in a row and that you are dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's because people will notice yeah. because they, they pay so much attention. I know it's outside the realm of movies. Although it did dive into, I think, a TV movie or two here and there. But Doctor Who is another oh, yeah. one where where people have been very quick to point out, you know, that this or that needs to stay consistent. Although I, I don't know the first thing about Doctor Who as far as some of its intricacies, but I do know that there's some way that they regenerate themselves. And that yep. explains why the the person who plays the doctor changes all the time so there's there's something along those lines that that yeah. explains that but but you need things like that to be written in or to be part of it because you will have fans who will pay very close attention to consistency like that especially if your movie or television series follows those lines now there are some where canon is pretty flexible as far and, and yet in in some ways may still have non-canonical things. And what I'm thinking of is James Bond. Oh yeah. The canon of James Bond is for the most part pretty flexible. Yeah. As far as the element of time, as far as the element of who is who is James Bond. I mean, that's been extremely flexible. And that that's kind of been established that James Bond is kind of this persona, I think really is, is what it is in the end and that the person who plays them changes obviously and then you have you have the um, the people alongside James who who change as well, you know, with Monty Penny and uh, you know even a guy like Felix Leiter um, we, or or M, you know, changing um, and and the changing of the guard with M. But I think what you're talking about is that the actor will change for both James yes. Bond and these people around him. But the only time that it's ever addressed, really, is when it's somebody else. When M, for example, uh, Dame Judi Dench played M from GoldenEye through Skyfall and with an appearance in Spectre, real briefly. Um, they just changed actors at some point through the run of the series as the actors have passed on or just decided to retire. It's always been addressed that now it's a different person. Right. And it's a different thing. Well, now what happens when Sean Connery leaves and it's Roger Moore that comes in or George Lazenby or Timothy Dalton? They don't address it at all. Well, George Lazenby, there's, I think, one line you're, you're right. where he you're references right. This Connery. didn't happen to the other guy. <laughs> Uh, but I think you kind of had to as the elephant in the room. Yes. So, but the only time, the closest it ever got for real was when Daniel Craig took over the role because they rebooted the whole franchise. In the beginning of that movie in Casino Royale, he isn't even 007 yet. Well, I, I think in some ways you could take it back to the chronology and say, well, did they ever actually go to the beginning in the other James Bond movies? And the answer was no. no. So it, it did still kind of make sense. Well, here's the fan theory. I'll bring this up. This might be a part of, this makes sense as to why James Bond looks different, acts different every decade or so as they change actors. The theory is this. The name James Bond is the same thing as 007. It's a code name. And the Sean Connery version of James Bond is actually a different guy, which is why he looks different from George Lazenby or anybody else that came after. Just like, you know, in various movies, 00 whoever that's not 7, 006 or whoever gets killed. And then later there's another 006. There's a slot open, you know. Okay, well, James Bond is retired or been killed. We need another guy. So this guy is Steven Weber. Okay, you're coming in. Now your code name is James Bond 007. 
That's the theory. Because Judy Dench's M had started in the Pierce Brosnan era, right? Carried over into this brand new James Bond era with Daniel Craig. Could that fit? It could fit if that's the theory. Now the movies have never alluded to this, really. Right? Is that a thing, or is it a fan kit? But it would be a part of canon, interestingly enough, if they ever went with it. Well, there are some there are some canon issues that James Bond faces. The one being. The death of his wife, yeah. uh, which which happened in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, there there's something like there's an element that like that that makes that came up in in other movies down the road uh, one or two times I think it came up uh, certainly in the Roger, one of the Roger Moore movies it came up um, so you you see things like that on occasion that come up some consistency things like that and yet I think people have kind of agreed to be pretty flexible on it and just stick to the the James Bond idea, although the Daniel Craig movies were all tied together pretty well as yeah, far as well. a, a consistency type of of idea. Now, there, as far as non-canon, James Bond has faced some an issue with that, and that of, is is never say never again, which yeah. maybe some people know exists, some people might not know exists. I stumbled upon it just by happenstance, and I was like, "What is this? This looks like this looks like Thunderball." Except it's in the it 1980s is. that this was made. And there's and, a and huge lawsuit going on about it right now, which I can tell you a little more after you're Still going on. Different. For a couple of years ago, the year Skyfall came out was the 50th anniversary of James Bond. So right. they, they put out the definitive 50th anniversary of James Bond, all Bond 50 years. This is MGM, though. This means they do not have the rights to Never Say Never Again. And it, well, they do which not, was not Eon Which produced. was not done by Eon. Now, Eon is the production company that has done all the Sean Connery bonds, the official ones, not Never Say Never Again. Um, the 20, what, 24 of them now? Yes. Something like that. This does not include Never Say Never Again, and this does not include the version of the from the 50s of Casino Royale with had Woody Allen and David Niven in it. Right. It does not include those. That was those. more of a comedy, though. Yeah. So when some gal in particular went and bought the 50th anniversary, she thought that it was going to include all of it, and it doesn't because they don't have the rights. And there's a huge lawsuit right now going for a huge lawsuit oh my. about why they included this, this is all Bond. You would think as a general consumer that everything Bond is going to be in there. And for the most part, it is, except for these two things. So that's just an interesting thing to bring up on the side, and it could get big. It And then that's where... You know, canon can create yeah. a legal issue, perhaps like that, because it's then, well, is this actually legitimate James Bond, or is this actually legitimate fill in the blank? Which we're building up toward maybe one of the biggest controversial canon topics of all, which we'll get to here in a moment. But, but yeah, it was it was Kevin McClory who had this this other idea. Him and and Ian Fleming kind of. Um, th- there was a breach of con- uh, of copyright issue that happened with uh, when they were developing Thunderball and coming up with the ideas for that, and then he wanted to bring this other idea to screen um, for this this kind of alternative story that was similar to Thunderball in many ways. But then, I mean, the title that it ended up getting ended up kind of being a joke. You know, it was a joke centered around the fact that Sean Connery said he would never play James Bond again after Diamonds Are Forever. And then, of course, they title this thing "Never Say Never Again" um, as they they bring the film to screen. Then, so it's yeah. it's it's one of those issues where canon can go outside of the story of the film and can become a problem outside the story of the film in some legal respects because then it's a question of, well, is this actually what you are saying it is? You know, in this case, is this actually a James Bond movie? Well, and then there's ways to try to get around canon, and I think. 
one of the good ways, a really good example of this recently has got to go to Star Wars. We always find our way back this, to Star Wars. This is the main one that I've kind of been alluding to as we've been going along because there are a lot of... Are you talking about the expanded universe? Well, yes. Uh, then I don't want to take your thunder. I don't okay. want to take your, I'll, take I'll, your thunder. I'll have you kick it off then as far as uh, talking about the, the the way Star Wars fits into canon. Well, let's give you some of the background story. For a, for a long time, it was just three movies. That's all there was. And then there were six movies. And then there was you know, the Clone Wars cartoon series and other stuff. But there was a lot of literature out there, too, a lot of books that dealt with what happens after Return of the Jedi or some other character that's way off in the distance. Uh, Shadows of the Empire was another one. Uh, things that dealt with things that weren't on screen or things that took place before or after, explaining where the Jedi had come from. All of the stuff you can possibly imagine was codenamed for a long time the Expanded Universe. When Lucasfilm sold to Disney, they basically had, they call it basically the Jedi Council, you know, as far as the Disney executives that said, all right, if it happens on screen, this is, this is going to be canon. Anything that's in a book is not canon. We elect the right to take elements from that later and add it to canon should we elect to. But as far as we're concerned, anything that's on book that's not produced officially is not canon. Now, how did you feel about that, Dave? Because there was a lot of controversy within Star Wars fandom about that. That whole Legends thing is what they became. Those became Legends. Those that were outside of canon kind of got shuffled off and put under a new name like that. And there were a lot of people not happy. I have I have friends who were not happy about that and the way that that all went down. You'd be amazed how passionate fandom can be about any particular thing, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or Doctor Who or Downton Abbey. I mean, come on. If you're really into your product, you're into it, and you almost look at it as if it's for real. So when something changes that doesn't make it makes it less real, people have a problem with that. And I've I've been there myself. Personally, you can't find a, a particular uh, series or franchise or anything where this has not been the case. There are James Bond movies, or books rather, being written today. Ian Fleming died back in the 60s, so he's not writing them anymore. But there's plenty of other Bond books that aren't written by Fleming that are completely on their own. They're not officially canon, but they're entertaining and okay. And Star Wars and Star Trek and you name it, they're all out there. I personally... I don't have a dog in this fight, to tell you the honest truth. I don't care as long as they're good and they're entertaining. Even though they might be separate or might now be shuffled off into separate. Because before then, it was part of that extended, expanded universe. And kind of part of the the ethos of Star Wars in some way. and so, uh, the, the mythical nature of what makes Star Wars what it is is that fan fiction could suddenly become part of the larger story. You could you could make it part of this this bigger tapestry if you wanted to. And now all of a sudden there there are people who have been part of making that who suddenly look and say, "Well, now this this new arrangement with Disney has suddenly stepped in and said, "Look, we're going to establish the way that this story is and it's our way or the highway." Even after decades of fan fiction helping make this what it is. Well, you can go a larger route than this. Regardless of what George Lucas has said over the decades, you know, this was not anything that was mapped out from day one. It got to the point where it was mapped out, and he had very roughly come up with, oh, he'd done the original movie, he kind of knew what was going to happen. But even the original trilogy, if you talk to people that were behind the scenes, the Emperor wasn't supposed to show up until episode nine. So the plan already got altered before the original trilogy was done. 
Then they went back to the prequels. Now they're doing the sequel trilogies. George Lucas had written out a very rough draft of what episodes 7, 8, and 9 would be. Disney, when they bought Lucasfilm, took a look at those and they said, eh, no, thank you. So George Lucas himself got got pushed off to the side. They said, we want to do something different that's going to go in a different direction. So if that's George Lucas and now you're Joe somebody that's got a book written about the aftermath of the fall of the Empire and what happens after Return of the Jedi, you've come up with your own idea of what you want to do and that's fantastic. Right. Think of it like this. It's a think of it like this: multiple universes, you know, uh, parallel dimensions, kind of thing. Anything that can happen. Star Trek certainly does got into happen. that with the most yeah. recent start with temporal the most mechanics. Movies. Anything that can happen does happen. So maybe there's a universe where Han Solo, um, you know, what they wanted to do when they filmed Return of the Jedi was that Han Solo was going to die in Return of the Jedi, trying to help the rebellion. Maybe there's a universe where that does happen, so he never makes it to Episode Seven. And now maybe there's a universe where he makes it out of episode seven. Whatever has come before in literature is a possibility down that timeline. But whatever the main timeline is, is still being established with episode eight coming out in The Last Jedi. Is that your idea of what those who are maybe disappointed that their works have now be, been shuffled into the Legends series should do is maybe take the way that the established timeline is now and come up with alternate reality kind of books centered around what, Star Wars? What's the alternative, honestly? And whether it's Star Wars or anything else... It'd be the, pretty clever if they would come up with, sure. with fiction like that. And I think you should. All you got, And all it takes is this. One later book. You know, maybe somebody in the Star Wars universe can jump dimensions. Kind of like that. If you saw Men in Black 3, there was that one quirky character that knew, is this the version where this happens? Oh, because you can see all possible outcomes across all the universe. So if you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about. All you need is one character like that in a later Star Wars expanded universe Legends book that says, I've been to the different Legends. and I've been to the different universes, the parallel dimensions. I've seen it where this happens. And that's all it takes. And all of a sudden, now that's what, oh, that's what, it, oh, now, then it's like retconning the Klingons and the ridges. Now it all comes together. It just takes one thing. That'd be a pretty mind-numbing element if they added it to Star Wars, because that's something totally different than we've ever seen with, yeah. with those movies. But on the other hand, though, and I think this is worth saying, too, in addition to the critique of what did this do to the fan fiction and the the extended universe of Star Wars, on the other hand, what they've done, at least initially with Rogue One, as far as the canon of Star Wars, was, was a really good example of what they did right oh, yeah. with adding to the story and with, with finding an element and, and doing really well with adding to it, and that being explaining some things about the Death Star and sort of filling in the gaps between the third and fourth movies. It almost, if in a way, if you watch them back-to-back, -back, Rogue One and A New Hope, which I've yet to do, I've seen them both, but I haven't watched them double feature-wise, it changes the narrative a little bit to the original story because, you know, the, the Death Star is the symbol of the bad guys and they're going to try to take out the good guys. Well, we're going to try to take you out first is basically what the narrative is. But then you watch Rogue One. It's almost a revenge attack because the Death Star wipes out a good portion of the rebellion before A New Hope even begins. Now we're striking back. We, yep. we struggled to get to this point. Now we're going to get you back. It changes the narrative a little bit, you know, and so it, it works really, really well. And the one issue with the fans that have had a big issue is, and they even joked about this in Family Guy, why would they make this ginormous space station that is all-powerful, can wipe out an entire planet? Oh, yeah, it's got this one spot on it that's completely undefended. And, just, just cover it up with some wood, yeah, as we'll just, Stewie would say. We'll just put some wood over it. It'll be fine. No one's going to – it's a small thermal exhaust port. It's like some. come on, it's not a problem. 
Then they explain in Rogue One it was intentionally built in there by a disgruntled Imperial designer to try to blow up the Death Star because he didn't like the Empire. It worked. And so fans were like, yes, that's where stupidity and and uh, and canon come together in a perfect, simpatico kind of way. Yeah. It's a great example. Yeah, canon has so many different layers and elements that come with it, especially when you are going through a chronological kind of story like Star Wars, or if you're going through a story that has a lot more open-endedness to it as far as time and as far as characters, like James Bond yeah. in its own ways. But, but that's what makes canon really interesting is that it, it – creates these discussions of what is legitimate, what's not legitimate, and and staying true to the story that you are telling. Canon keeps producers and storytellers and creators honest in a very big way because you have to stay true to the story. You have to stay true to the elements and the, the mythos that come with it in some ways too. There are ways around it. There are. And it's clever what some have come up with for ways around it. But at the same time, you need to be careful with what you do to work around it if you are trying to go around it. A good example, and I'll I'll go back to Star Trek one more time, because Star Trek is the best way to explain all this. And I don't want to over-Star Trek this, but uh, when they did the new movies, the Kelvin Universe, they're calling it, it's actually a sequel reboot. So the 2009 Star Trek movie is where this all starts. You have Leonard Nimoy's Spock and the Romulan Nero, they are in the future after the events of the next generation, and they get pulled back into time, thus, like the expanded universe potentially, starting a whole new timeline. It doesn't delete everything from what we had already seen. It's a parallel timeline. So if you can jump dimensions, you could go back to what you've seen before. So it starts a whole new chain of events from the point where they go back in time. So the journey of Kirk and Spock and that Enterprise crew is going to be different from the one that we'd seen with William Shatner and their crew, they're both correct. So it's fascinating how they did that because they both exist. You That's didn't right. you didn't delete anything, but prior to that point they have You also sh- didn't nullify anything no, either. But prior to that point, you have a shared history. Now, the new series that's about to come out, Star Trek Discovery, is set in what's called the Prime Universe, the William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy universe of Kirk and Spock. Uh, but prior to that, where the timelines split the events of Star Trek Enterprise with uh, Scott Bakula, those are consistent with both versions, if that makes sense. Yes. So there's a way to escape all the mythos. There's a way to escape where, well, you can't say that this happened because in this episode you said that that happened, but what if you jump off into a whole other universe where everything can be redealt? You know, some things are going to be the same. Some things will not. Right. It, it takes creativity, but if you're going to do justice to your story, and the way that you're trying to tell it, canon is very important to keep in mind because fans who are listening, especially if it is of a franchise or if it's of a, um, a, a consistent story, they're going to be paying attention and they want to make sure that those things are done right and that they do them justice. I wonder, looking back on Rick and Nick talk flicks in the future, what will our canon be when we look back at it? What happens when Rick and Nick show up, and that's their first episode of the show, but it's really like episode 25 or whatever. They're probably going to try to reboot the entire thing, you know? (laughs) They're probably going to look back and say, all of those, those are now legends, those ones that Dave and Joel hosted. Us, this is the real thing Their intelligence was just a thing of fabled myth. And then they're going to go and talk about the topic of canon, and they're going to talk about canon in their own crazy warped way. And it's like, and then the fans who listen are going to be like, 
What's wrong with this? This doesn't make sense at all. This isn't consistent. And it's under the Rick and Nick name. We should retitle this episode. It's not Man the Cannon. It's Geek Gripe. (laughs) You know what I don't like about the cannon problems? You know what? This movie... This episode of the podcast, like a movie, is probably going to get retitled sometime in the future by Rick and Nick. Nerds unite. Trying to reset the past and set up a new future. So, wow. What a what a crazy topic, though, the, the topic of canon. But that's part of what makes it clever yeah. and creative is that there is opportunity for... Uh, for you to be able to to sort of find your way, even if you get canon a little bit wrong at different times. Like for instance, I know that I know that there's there's controversy surrounding the Alien movies of the way that Alien yeah. Three went down, and people wanting to maybe create an alternate reality for that. Will that ever be done in the future? Apparently, no. Apparently, no. It's been talked about, but I know that there are people who want to reset something like that. But in the world of movies, there is most times. Away. I don't want to say always away, just like Sean Connery should have said never. It should have never said never. But Everyone's, there's usually a way that you can sort of reset the frame. Everyone that wants to come in and put their own stamp, you can certainly get your voice in there without stamping over the voices that have come before. You know what I mean? And And add to it rather than change it around. And sometimes... Maybe it's lazy storytelling where we this is the story we want to tell. Yeah, but it throws in the face of everything else... Maybe you change the story, or maybe you have to be aware of what has come before, and that could be a really hard thing. Things like Star Trek or James Bond, it goes back 50 years now. Yeah. So if you're not up on all the 50 years, or you're not, you know, have a nerd living down the street that you can go call up, hey, guy, I want to do this thing. Can I do what? I can't because what? I, oh, real? Oh, okay. You almost need that to a point, unless you're going to hit the reset button, and then you doesn't matter. And so that's... Maybe that's why all these long, iconic franchises are kind of hitting the reboot button, because it's hard to get a writer now that's 25 that can go back to a show that started in 1966 and be expected to be up on everything. Reboot. Reboot. Restarting. Yeah, there's a lot of it these days. I still like new ideas. Come up with new ideas and the canon that come with them. But move we listen. Sometimes people just can't help themselves, though. So, But... As far as Canon's concerned, it's a good topic, and it was a pretty good one for today. Geeks Unite. That's the name of the new episode, I think. <laughs> Geeks Unite. Look at that. We're rebooting the title within the midst of the episode of the show. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks, and we have not yet been recast. No, we have not, thankfully. This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters. Good to be back with you again this week. We'll talk to you soon. Until then, we'll see you at the movies.